Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arenas. And I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Today, we have a special show for you. It's our Best of 2018 show. We'll take a look back at some of our favorite interviews from what has been a very eventful year in technology. Oh my gosh, such an eventful year that the ground is moving under our feet and my head is spinning and the sky is falling. But we're going to talk about everything from misinformation on the big social media platforms coming from uh, malicious foreign state actors like the Kremlin-linked Internet Research Agency. We're going to talk about Cambridge Analytica. We're going to talk about racial justice. We're going to talk about tech workers fighting back within their own companies. Puerto Rico and Bitcoin. Senator Mark Warner. All the best hits. Hit after hit. That's all coming up on today's If Then. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. This is a clip from our interview with Taylor Lorenz. This was on January 23rd, at which time she was a culture and tech reporter for the Daily Beast. She was focusing on the subculture of teen YouTube stars. Lorenz is now a writer for The Atlantic. You mentioned that the YouTube stars of today are different in important ways from teen stars of the past. So one that you've written a lot about is Logan Paul. You were on the Logan Paul beat before the rest of the world turned its attention to Logan Paul after that video that he recorded in the so-called suicide forest in Japan. It was all—it was going to be a joke. Yeah. Yeah. This was all going to be a joke. <laughs> Why did it become so real? What the f*** is going on? I don't know, dude. I don't know. <laughs> Why? It's sinking in. Bro, this wasn't supposed to happen, man. You had written about his legions of tween fans. What is different about the relationship between a YouTube vlogger like Logan Paul and you know today's ten and twelve year olds versus I don't know, you know, a band like One Direction or like for an older generation, um, you know, Backstreet Boys or New Kids on the Block or whatever. I think that the way that their fans relate to them is radically different. You know, a lot of people compare like sort of vlogger craziness to like Beatlemania or something. And it's really different because I think that, you know, people who consume uh, content from these creators, specifically a lot of the kids that follow them, they they relate to these people on a much more personal level. They don't just watch their vlogs every day, which is, by the way, a lot more, you know, that they put out, these vloggers put out a lot more content than like One Direction does. You know, One Direction will put out a hit album, it'll resonate with kids, but they're not creating content every single day and and documenting every moment of their life, every feeling, every up and down. You know, these people, like especially YouTubers, they're not just putting out content on YouTube. They're putting out content 24-7 on Instagram stories. They're responding to people on Twitter. They're, you know, engaging fans in all these different types of apps. A lot of them are on Musical.ly or other emerging platforms. And um, so, you know, kids come to relate to them in this really deep level. It's sort of somebody that's, like, with them 24-7 in their pocket. A lot of the YouTubers, too, um, 
they speak a lot. Of, it's not, I would, I hesitate to call it culty, but they're kind of motivational or sense. Like, you know, they really work hard to build communities around, um, around themselves. And, you know, you can look at that obviously as a way for them to later promote merchandise or sell things to these kids, but they also, um, you know, focus on building these deep relationships. Like for instance, you know, Jake Paul, Logan's Paul brother, he'll do these sort of motivational Instagram stories where he'll talk about bullying. He'll talk about, you know, his troubles in school and he'll explain to the kids who follow him, like, you know, don't worry. And by the way, like message me if you're going through something, you know, and, and they'll engage heavily with their fans back. So, um, I think that it's just a much deeper, closer, more personal relationship than what, um, you know, kids have with other sort of like more mainstream entertainers. There's just like a layer of difference there. I will leave it at that, guys. Thank you all for tuning in. Join the movement. Become better every day. Smile every day. Work hard every day. And I will see you guys tomorrow because it's every day, bro. Peace. Right. These kids aren't situated in a sitcom that is a bunch of, like, staged problems with your parents that you eventually get over in 30 minutes at the end of the show. They're actually talking about things that, you know, kids deal with every day. And and, and then, like you said, they're actually in the kids' pockets. So they're making just a ton of content there, right? Yeah, they make content 24-7. Everything is content to these people. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I think that's what got Logan Paul in trouble, too. It's like he didn't even think twice about potentially not vlogging a dead body when he came across it because he's so used to sort of documenting every single part of his life um, and every single moment that he experiences. Like, he wants his fans to experience with him. Um, So, yeah, so that I think that that's really different. And kids kind of, like see these people not as a friend i mean they know that like jake is too big of a deal and they sort of idolize him too or and logan same thing um or any vlogger but i think that they feel like this person helps them or this person helps them deal with you know whatever they're going through at school or life or whatever one question i had is i mean it seems like they're making money obviously from advertisements on youtube is that and then i guess they're selling Merch. merchandise um and one of the big things that you wrote about with jake paul and sorry i got this wrong earlier i had logan confused with his brother jake but Everyone your your piece on the two they're both blonde teen idols so understandable. Uh, But in your piece, you said that uh, people lined up in the freezing cold for hours, these nine-year-olds out there chanting outside of a Jake Paul merchandise pop-up shop. So I guess that's another way that they make money. Part of the appeal, as I understand it, is the lifestyle. They they live in this mansion in LA. Are they making, you know, millions on YouTube ads and merchandise? Absolutely. And I just want to stress, because I think it gets under-recognized, like these kids are merch machines. Like, Especially when you think of Jake and Logan Paul, like no one has ever pushed merch the way that these two push merch. And I think that they have sort of developed this entirely new revenue stream um, that sort of other creators um, have, have hopped on the bandwagon. You know, we've seen 40 of the top YouTube creators launch their own custom merch lines this year, and they're constantly pumping out like new and custom merch like you know, Jake Paul, for instance, will monetize every relationship that he has. You know, he sells ship merch with, um, you know, his sort of name with him and his potentially fake girlfriend um, that he sells to fans and he'll sell these limited edition things. He literally released a Christmas song where he sings out the URL to his merch shop. Um, so it's a huge revenue stream for them. Um, obviously, you know, the probably the bigger revenue stream is those ads on YouTube. But I think that that merch is is sort of growing. But like you said, it's all about buying into a lifestyle. And it's all about sort of feeling like you're part of this community. And so, you know, for Jake and Logan Paul, it's like, are you part of the Logang? Are you part of the, you know, Jake Paulers? And 
Um, if you are, then, you know, you need this sweatshirt and that just makes you more of a hardcore Jake Pauler and you're just that much closer to kind of like being in the squad. Is real. Tomorrow's vlog is a huge one. So be ready for that. Turn your post notifications on. Ring the little bell. With that said, little gang, I love y'all. I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, who's that Santa looking at? Take your gifts and give them back. Maverick merch is where it's at. Got the hoodie, got the hat. Who's that Santa looking at? You should drink more milk, not fat. You should get my new back. Once again, that was Taylor Lorenz, who was at the Daily Beast when we talked to her in January. She now writes for The Atlantic. Here's a clip from an interview with Yashima Bit Milner. She's the founder and executive director of Data for Black Lives. You might have seen her piece earlier this year on Medium entitled An Open Letter to Facebook from the Data for Black Lives Movement. It's about the need for uh, black researchers and data scientists and and others to have uh, access to data from Facebook so that way they can conduct research to make sure that the platform and all social media is working for them. Can you tell us a little bit about what Data for Black Lives does and and kind of how you got started and how you're addressing some of these issues that you just talked about? So Data for Black Lives, we launched in the um, November 2017 with a conference at the MIT Media Lab. Um, We are a organization, a network right now of 3,000 scientists, activists, advocates, mathematicians, software engineers, people who work at places like Google and Facebook, honestly, who are really committed to using the power of big data to make real change in the lives of black people. You know, I actually grew up learning how to use data for very different purposes than I think most people are really accustomed to. When I was a high school student, some young people at a neighboring high school, the school that I was actually supposed to go to, but I was a part of a magnet program at another school, um, they organized a peaceful protest in the school cafeteria because a administrator put a student in a headlock, right? And instead of their protests being recognized as being, wow, you know, these young people are so courageous and look at their, you know, use of nonviolent leadership principles to really get their voices heard, their protest was met with violence. Um, SWAT teams were sent in, police dogs. I remember sitting at home and literally watching on CNN as, you know, the headlines read students at Miami Senior High riot and seeing kids that I went to kindergarten with being slammed against police cars and arrested. You know, so I knew then and there that we really had to find other channels to get our voices heard, that even the traditional avenues of advocacy are going to be met with violence. And that's really where I turned to data. Right right after that, I joined an organization where we hit the ground running, surveying 600 young people in Miami, Dade County, about their experiences in schools with suspensions, arrests, sexual harassment, you know, and it was tough because while we were doing the data collection, we were also trying to talk to our um, school board about these issues, and we would often be kicked out of the meetings, you know. Mm -hmm. But that data collection became so important because what we were able to do with the data was actually turn it into a a comic book. (laughs) And that comic book was used and is still being used today um, to help people pass policies um, to change these practices that um, are happening in schools that continue to happen. Back then, we didn't really have the language. Well, we did, but, you know, thanks to the work of Obama and years of organizing, now people understand it as the school-to-prison pipeline. But for us, we were just young people trying to get something to change at our schools, right? We were tired of, you know, going to school and, 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 and seeing what was happening. And, 
You know, it was amazing because not only were we able to actually get policy change, but just watching young people open up these comic books and say, hey, I'm not a bad kid because I've been suspended. This is a local problem. This is a citywide problem. This is a national problem. And it's called the School to Prison Pipeline, and we can change it. And it was like, wow, this is the power of data, right? This is the power of data to speak for people who've been historically disenfranchised. This is the power of data to shift narratives, to really build political voice, to build political power. And for me, I was hooked, you know? In your letter, you don't necessarily say that Facebook should stop collecting data, right? Uh, but you say that perhaps they're, they're using it wrong or perhaps they could be using it better. Uh, could you kind of unpack that a little bit? You know, Facebook collects so much data. And one of the things that I would do when I first started Data for Black Lives was one of my biggest things when I was bored or whatever would go, I would log on to research.facebook.com. And I would totally nerd out on all of the kind of peer-reviewed style, style articles that came out of Facebook. Literally, researchers working at Facebook were using Facebook data to answer questions that, there, you know, I don't even know institutions with the biggest endowment could never research. No one had this had, had the breadth, the depth, and the scale of the data that they have, whether it's on housing prices and housing markets and how that's shifting in real time. Being able to, you know, use data that's been collected from, from the platform in order to do d disaster preparedness, right, like at a level that I think federal agencies and local organizations would dream of. So for me, I was like, wow, like there's a lot that's happening at Facebook that, you know, depending on who you are, it could either be really, really cool and really, you know, interesting to read, or it could also be really creepy. But either way, it gave me a lot of ideas for what we could do with that data, right? What would it look like for Facebook data to be used to help us understand, you know, what a mom is thinking or what a mom needs before a baby dies? What would it look like for us to use Facebook data to, you know, scale up efforts of existing advocates in Maryland and Oakland and Miami, Florida, who were using Facebook as a way to disarm young people and stop shootings before they happen, right? So that, and totally addressing gun violence in a way that I don't think people are really, really doing. What would it look like to use Facebook data, you know, to really defend and protect the civil and human rights of people who really make Facebook valuable? and create this data. And I think that, unfortunately, most people are only now learning about the opportunities through developer, you know, access, through Facebook RFPs that people like, honestly, Alexander Kogan were able to access, that it is possible to use social network data, that there are channels and, and inroads. But for us, it's for me specifically, why is it easier for Alexander Kogan to get access to this data than a Black researcher who's been working tirelessly on issues that are really pressing, but doing a, a lot, a lot of great work with very little resources. So, you know, I don't think Facebook's going anywhere. Our communities rely on Facebook. I'm, I come from an immigrant family. My family's from Guyana. If it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't be able to get in touch with them or know what was going on in their lives, right? For families that are torn apart by displacement or gentrification, Facebook is the way to connect. For poor families who don't have data plans, and, you know, cell phone service, Facebook Messenger is how they stay connected even, you know, on a daily basis. So, but how do we set a new standard? How do we shift from harm reduction, which I think is really important, to actually saying, you know what, Facebook has an opportunity here to really do something powerful, 
to really set a new standard for all tech companies. And that's sort of where our demands come from. Our first is that, you know, we're asking that, pay, that Facebook commits anonymized, de-identified data to a public data trust. The second is that Facebook commits to work with us and our leaders within the Data for Black Lives movement with elected officials to develop a code of ethics because there's a lot of transparency issues around their internal research review process. And the third is really simple. Hire more black data scientists, hire more black researchers to serve not only in sales and analytics roles, but also within the really robust research department that they have at Facebook. All right. One interview that we wanted to highlight again was our discussion with Adam Masseri, who at the time was the head of Facebook's newsfeed. His sense left that position to run Instagram for Facebook. We spoke with Adam on March 13th. There was some criticism this week from a perhaps unlikely source of Facebook's role in the news, a UN report where they're investigating whether there has been genocide against the Rohingya people in Myanmar, mentioned that Facebook has helped to fuel hatred of the Rohingya people there. And uh, when I ask folks on Twitter, what should we ask you? Because everybody has a lot of questions for you these days. I noticed that, that by the way. <laughs> that was one that came up again and again, is how do you think about your responsibility? Uh, you know, you're sitting there in Menlo Park with your team. You're trying to be thoughtful about ways to change the news feed uh, to, to better serve your readers and to give them what they want. But sometimes that turns into helping maybe to, to fan the, the flames of, of hatred uh, in a country uh, halfway across the world. What do you do? What you know? How do you think about that kind of problem? What do you do when you hear that kind of criticism? Uh, and, and what's your process that you take to address something like that? So it's important for us to remember that technology isn't naturally a good or a bad thing. It's sort of um, agnostic, and it's just how technology is used that can be either good or bad. Similarly, connecting the world isn't always going to be a good thing. Sometimes it's also going to um, have negative consequences. The most um, concerning and severe um, negative consequences of any platform potentially would be real-world harm. So what's happening on the ground in Myanmar is deeply concerning in a lot of different ways. Um, it's also challenging for us in a number of, for a number of reasons. There is false news, um, not only on Facebook, but in general in Myanmar. But there are no, as far as we can tell, third-party fact-checking organizations with which we can partner, which means that we need to rely instead on other methods of addressing some of these issues. We look heavily actually for bad actors um, at things like whether or not they're violating our terms of service or community standards to try and use those levers to try and address the proliferation of some problematic content. We also try to rely on the community as effectively as we can and changing incentives around things like clickbait or sensational headlines, which correlate but aren't the same as false news. And so those are all examples of how we're trying to take the issue seriously. But we, we lose some sleep over this. I mean, real-world harm and what's happening on the ground in that part of the world is actually one of the most concerning things for us and something that we talk about on a regular basis um, specifically about how we might be able to do more um, and be more effective and more quickly. Lately, there's a whole new set of issues that have come to the fore, particularly since the 2016 election, which is what if in the process of trying to give people what they want, you end up 
uh, undermining civil discourse in various ways, you know, reinforcing filter bubbles or allowing uh, foreign foreign agents to interfere in an election by posting content that plays on people's emotions and gets them riled up. I mean, sometimes people want to get riled up about how evil uh, liberals are, how evil conservatives are. And Facebook seems to have unintentionally maybe optimized for that, uh, for, for sort of stoking that kind of division in our society. So how do you now think about what the goal of Facebook is, particularly vis-a-vis news and politics? I mean, I understand you're working at the same time on these issues of meaningful interactions with friends and family, which is really the core, I think, of what you want Newsfeed to be about. But when you're thinking about its role in society, do you now, have you moved past in some way that the, that the goal is just to give people what they want or make them feel good? And are you moving towards some sense of broader societal or, or democratic uh, uh, obligations in terms of what you're prioritizing in the feed? Historically, we haven't been trying to focus Newsfeed on giving people exactly what they want or what makes them feel good, though I think our work gets categorized uh, as such pretty often, but rather we've been trying and maybe not being particularly effective at connecting people with what they would find meaningful, which I think is an important distinction to make. And you're asking about not only long-term interests, but you're asking about do we have a responsibility to society as a whole or to groups or to communities of people? Um, and I think those things are related. I think people's long-term interests tend to be more aligned with the interests of a community and their short-term interests seem to be more focused on their interests as an individual. Um, and we have been trying to broaden. So we've been trying to consider more how do we think about what is the most effective or what's the best newsfeed that we can possibly create, not only for an individual, but also for a community, for communities at large. Um, and we've, one of the ways that we've been doing that is we've been trying to better understand people's longer-term interests, which are, quite frankly, more difficult to understand and measure and optimize for. But I have found no evidence in my time working on Newsfeed that there's a correlation between easy to measure and important. And so that's just why it's so critical that we um, get better at this and get better at this quickly. And it's not just, though, about you know what people want to see or, or you know who they you know, who they follow, who are their friends that that maybe show them stuff that perhaps they disagree with, but they are friends with them or have them in their social circles. There's also stuff that people kind of need to see, like like local political information, you know, uh, about local races or other, you know, things that may be going on in, in the civic life locally that they won't access unless it somehow intersects with them. It might be something that they don't choose to follow a page, but 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 it would still benefit them greatly to know this. And they depend on Facebook for their news. And so I'm curious how Facebook is grappling with, you know, making sure that people are getting the information that they need to see, like local news, for example. It's important for us to remember that given our scale, there are certain types of decisions that I think would be appropriate to make and certain types of decisions that would be inappropriate to make. And I don't mean to suggest that we are objective or or neutral, right? We have a set of values. We have a set of standards. Those values and standards are reflected in the decisions that we make every day and they affect what people see. But I think there are certain ways in which we can pursue those values that would make sense given our scale and there's certain ways that wouldn't make sense. So to get to your specific question, we believe that local content, local news, but not only news, local information about what's happening in your community, in your neighborhood is incredibly important. Um, It's the bedrock in a lot of ways of local communities, which are suffering in all sorts of ways um, all over the country. We also know that local news publishers are um, suffering significantly as well. And I think pursuing 
ways of valuing more local content in newsfeed is absolutely something that's appropriate and something that we're actively doing. And part of the reason why it's okay for us to do that is because people tell us on a regular basis that they want to see more local content and not, they're not seeing it enough. And there's a lot of reasons that might be happening. But deciding what specific issues in a local community are the key ones for that community to know about in, a specific, in, a, in any given day is probably not appropriate for us given our scale, but also not practical. I mean, given the number of places in the world in which we operate, I don't think that there's any way we could actually have an informed opinion on specific issues in specific communities all over the world every day. And so what we try and do is understand the root value, in this case, that local com local information, news and otherwise, is important to communities and is in line with our values and our mission as a company to bring people closer together and then pursue that in a way that makes sense and is also scalable. That was Adam Mosseri. He was head of Facebook's newsfeed when we spoke to him last March. Now he runs Instagram. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. Terms and more at applecard.com. Now we're going to listen to a clip from our interview with author Naomi Klein about Puerto Rico. We spoke to her about those who are coming to the island after Hurricane Maria, a crisis that, that left the, the island shattered economically, infrastructurally, and uh, also left the island open to people who want to invest in Bitcoin development there and kind of build a Bitcoin colony. We spoke to Naomi Klein about that, who those people are and what they're trying to do. Please enjoy. Puerto Rico is a, a quite a kind of unique example of what I call the shock doctrine because you have a, a sort of shock after shock doctrine right. where um, it was it, it, this these, this mechanism was already very much in play using Puerto Rico's debt crisis before Maria hit. And this had been going on for well over a decade of exploiting the debt crisis to push a plan to privatize the island's infrastructure, to radically downsize its public education system and privatize it huge layoffs in the public sector, huge deregulation, big giveaways to corporations and the ultra-rich to encourage them to come relocate to Puerto Rico. Um, and then Maria hits, and the whole thing goes into hyperdrive. I mean, the fact is, Maria hadn't even made landfall before you started to see speculation in the business press that this was going to be the opportunity to privatize the electricity system. Now, against the backdrop of some of the activists that you met, there is, as you mentioned, another group of people coming to Puerto Rico who are, who are already there, cryptocurrency enthusiasts who want to actually buy a piece of land on the island and create a new kind of crypto colony. Some are calling it a crypto island. Others are calling it Seoul, you say. They're attracted to the island's tax haven status or near tax haven status. As you note in your book, uh, U.S. citizens who move to Puerto Rico can avoid paying federal income tax on any income earned on Puerto Rico, zero capital gains tax. The list goes on. And the governor of Puerto Puerto Rico has been supportive, making the case at a conference in February that Puerto Rico should be seen as a blank canvas for entrepreneurs who want to capitalize on the area's relative lack of regulation. How likely do you think this kind of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency uh, oasis is likely to come to fruition in your view? Does it seem like they have a chance at kind of building their libertarian paradise? You know, it's really hard to know. Um, 
anybody who spent time with the cryptocurrency crowd knows there is a really, really high level of fast talking bullshit. Um, so I, I really can't say whether they are going to do what they're talking about, which is kind of build their own city that is entirely built on blockchain um, technology and that you would need like a passport and things like this. I mean, we're hearing a lot um, <clears throat> that, and it may simply be a kind of, a, you know, philanthro cover for the fact that people are really just moving there because they can get a mansion on the cheap in a kind of gated resort community. Um, and they, because of these, these, uh, you know, extraordinary lax tax laws, um, they would be able potentially to convert their crypto cash into hard us currency and not pay, um, capital gains. Uh, and you know, that, that, that's the real reason why they're there, whether they would build their, you know, libertarian fantasy land. Um, you know, I, ha I have no idea. I have no way of, uh, of knowing, you know, what is, what is fantasy talk and what is real at this point, but they are looking for large pieces of land. And they do seem to have support from the government that uh, that wants to see entrepreneurs come in like them and 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 build businesses, you know, even blockchain businesses like they're focusing on. Right. Um, I mean, they're they and this is I mean the the extraordinary thing about this is that is that you know Puerto Rico had a policy in the forties and fifties and sixties to attract U.S. Um, companies to the island to build factories, right? And these were tax incentives that were tied to the creation of thousands and thousands of jobs. What's extraordinary about these these laws is that they're not required to create any any jobs at all. I mean, they don't need to do anything but hire a gardener to um to to benefit from these tax incentives. Right. And what are your thoughts then on on these kind of private companies or, you know, even folks like Elon Musk or, or Google coming in and saying that they're going to swoop in with with some of their solutions? Well, look, I mean, Tesla provided batteries for a children's hospital, solar panels and batteries for a children's hospital. I mean, who is going to to argue with that? That's you know, that's that's hugely important. Um, but. I also think there's been a lot of talk and not enough of follow up and a sort of almost using Puerto Rico as a, um, you know, as an advertising platform for some of these companies. And, um, you know, in terms of the follow through that people so desperately need, there has not been nearly enough. And what I found in my reporting on the island is that people want power, not just electricity. They also want political power. Um, they want to have a say in, in, in how their electricity is generated. And they're worried about this sort of green energy becoming a cover for privatization. Um, you know, I'm, I met somebody when I was in Puerto Rico, a trade union leader, who talked about how he was worried that Puerto Rico was going to have a lot of green energy and no power. <laughs> Um, no political power. And, you know, this fits in with a colonial relationship with the United States. I mean, Puerto Rico is often referred to as the world's oldest colony. Uh, and that's true, that they have been a colony since Puerto Rico was handed over from Spain to the United States. Um, so what people are fighting for in Puerto Rico is real sovereignty, you know, energy sovereignty, food sovereignty, and yes, political sovereignty as well. 
That was a piece of her interview with author Naomi Klein, and it was recorded on June 6th. So here's a clip from our interview with Senator Mark Warner from Virginia. Warner is the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee that is conducting its investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And he is also probably the strongest advocate for regulating and and really scrutinizing the power of large American technology companies. He joined us for an interview on October 16th. Here's a clip from that. Earlier this year, you released a paper outlining various possibilities for how Congress might be able to step in and do more to ensure that these tech companies aren't making our elections awful and acting irresponsibly with our personal data. In your opinion, what's the most urgent issue in regards to U.S. tech companies and social media platforms that can be addressed by Congress? Well, I think we need to move past kind of the where we've been the last 10 years where people in business and in politics have been totally enamored around the social media companies and the tech companies. And there's, Lord knows, I mean, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they've all been wonderfully successful stories. But I think starting in 2016, we've seen the kind of dark underbelly of of social media, how in the case of our elections, um, Russians were able to come in and intervene in massive ways with fake information, with disinformation. And that was on the political context. What we've also seen has been manipulation around stock prices, around advertising click-throughs. And my effort was to say, particularly with a lot of my peers, my background was in technology. I was in the wireless industry, co-founder of Nextel. So I come with a little bit of knowledge. Many of my colleagues have very little knowledge. So what I've tried to do in this paper is to say, here are 20 ideas, not all of them good. But I tried to break them into three buckets on how we might think about guardrails. One bucket is around user authentication and data authentication. Should we have some right to know if someone represents themselves on the Internet, if they are that real person? Or should we have a right to know whether we're being communicated to by a human versus a bot? Should we be able to know where a post might originate from? None of these are solve all issues, uh, but there is that whole question around authentication. Second bucket is around privacy and something I know, April, you've been working on for some time. And everything from first party consent to the whole, I would argue, slightly clunky GDPR approach of are there privacy protections. And the third bucket are the questions around are there pro-competition tools where some of these enterprises have become so large and so powerful that actually could be market-based solutions that might uh, provide some relief. So, for example, being an old telecom guy, it used to be really hard to move from one company to another until there was number portability. Should we increase data portability? Uh, If you have increased data portability, we could take all of your data that you have on Facebook and move to a new platform. How do you also guarantee interoperability? One of the issues that I raised, for example, with Sheryl Sandberg was, you know, wouldn't it be great if users could know not only how much data Facebook or Google or Twitter has on us uh, by individual kind of uh, data points, but also how much that is worth on a monthly or quarterly basis to those companies. So bringing more transparency, both the data and pricing, might then provide, for example, areas for new competitors to come in that might end up intermediating between a user and a platform to provide different levels of security based upon a user's wants. So the three buckets of competition, privacy, and authentication, I think are at least how I'm thinking about this issue in terms of approach. 
Senator Warner, let's say you have a constituent who comes to you and says, look, I use Google, I use Facebook. I'm really afraid about how they're harvesting all my data. We had the Google Plus breach uh, or the at least exposure of personal data. We had the giant Facebook hack and the Cambridge Analytica. Your constituent says, I use these services and I'm afraid, but I don't feel like I have a choice. Now, when they testified to you in Congress, these companies said, oh, of course people have choices. There's, there's plenty of other social networks or search engines. Do you buy that answer? And is that what you tell your, your constituent or is there something else <laughs> you can tell your constituent? No, I don't, I don't buy that answer because, I mean, you know, it's, you can't opt out. Even if you're not on Facebook, you may have friends who are who will have information about you. I mean, these are, these are companies with as much power, if, if not more, than even the giant trusts that were uh, – the railroad and chemical and shipping industries at the beginning of the 20th century. And I think we are going to have to have this, um, you know, in a sense, reckoning with them. And I'm, you know, and, but I have been concerned that I don't want to undercut the American companies to have them replaced by Chinese companies that may even have more information and even less restraints. That's why I go, for example, on the, on the information piece, you know, I'm really intrigued with this idea of more transparency. If a user really knew how much information Facebook has or Google has about uh, that individual, and if we actually had pricing transparency as well, because a lot of Americans believe, oh my gosh, this is all free stuff. This isn't free. Uh, this is, you know, people are harvesting information about each of us and they're monetizing it. If we had more transparency on that, that might inject more competition, or might move us quicker on trying to put some guardrails. Again, I don't want to stop innovation. I don't want to slow it with undue regulation. But I I frankly believe that this is a personal security threat. I believe it's a national security threat. I, I honestly believe, in a certain sense, um, looking at our $713 billion defense budget, we may be buying in this country the world's best 20th century military in terms of tanks and trucks and Rockets, whereas you know, our near-peer adversaries like Russia and China are realizing cyber and misinformation and disinformation may be the tools of conflict in the 21st century, and I'm not sure we're fully prepared. What can Americans who are concerned about these issues do? You know, that's – I'd love to give you a, a clearer answer. I'd say, you know, write or email your, your congressmen or senators, um, but for many of – the members, you know, maybe the young aide who's reading the post will understand it. I'm not sure that some of our members will. I mean, one of the things I, because one of the things we've done, for example, on the Intelligence Committee, was we spent an awful lot of time trying to educate folks about how, in this case, the Russians were using these tools. And I was really proud when we had Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg. You know, nobody went off and started, you know, speculating about bias and algorithms. Um, you know, they got to the House and it was a very different matter. I think the questions were more serious. But boy, oh boy, we do need to continue to educate members, you know, hopefully in a more bi- in a bipartisan way um, so that we can get to the point of some guardrails. So I, I think though, continuing to have individuals contact their, their congresspeople and senators and say, if, particularly if they have concerns about the amount of information that these companies have about us. I, you know, we have this huge concern that the government has all this information on us as individuals. I can assure you that, uh, that if you're an active Facebook or active Google user, those companies have more information about your personal habits and what you do and where you shop and what you're interested in than the United States government has. 
And that was a clip from our interview with Senator Mark Warner, a senator from Virginia, on his thoughts on regulating the technology industry. Now we're going to listen to a segment from our interview with Paige Panter, an organizer and volunteer with the Tech Workers Coalition, a group that's acting as kind of a resource hub for those within the tech industry that want to push their companies to be more ethical. Now, you've been organizing for a few years with, or not organizing, but volunteering, rather, with Tech Workers Coalition. Uh, And you said that, you know, there have been other issues beyond just the products that companies are making that have caused workers to want to come together and and push for change internally. And one of those is the abysmal diversity numbers uh, at at, uh, Silicon Valley companies you mentioned. Um, You know, it seems that there is more gusto now around stopping some of the 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 work with with the government now that Trump is in office um, than around diversity stuff or, or around solidarity with uh, you know low paid workers that work in Silicon Valley. So I'm 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 curious with your experience kind of over the years. Can can you talk about what's what's changed now? Yeah, I mean it's a, maybe sharing my personal journey would help a little bit. But yes, my own entry to Tech Workers Coalition was around 2015 when we when our work was really focused on solidarity efforts and how to show up for workers at our companies who are in union drives or contract renegotiations. Um, so at that time I was working on this, I had been working on this HR software product that we hoped would be a big game changer for issues around systemic discrimination and bias and who gets hired at what companies for which jobs. So this is like 2014, Google's releasing data for the first time on the diversity of their workforce and the conversation about lack of equal representation in tech is finally getting some attention. And anyways, this diversity and inclusion product I was working on in my day-to-day experience had me disillusioned with software-based interventions for the kind of injustices I was seeing around my workplace and my peers' workplaces. Um, I felt like I was getting a front row seat to just like the evils of how the VC system works as far as who decides what products get built and deployed in the first place or what problems are valuable to solve. And then I was also like kind of starting to see the discrimination in jobs as hard coded and like baked into the system Mm -hmm. and especially learning how little execs were really interested in trying to change that. And so that awareness was growing in me in the sense of that that top-down interventions seemed like a lost cause. Um, and I had I had ended up at a Rainbow Push Coalition event. This is Jesse Jackson's org, who was influential in getting Google to re- release their um, diversity data. So like in the in the main conference hall, we're watching Intel CEO get congratulated for these like sweeping promises and lip, lip service to diversity goals that probably will never meaningfully materialize. And then moments later, in a side panel, I'm hearing from a group of service workers talking about some of the same things I was feeling, like like we can't just wait on execs to step up and make change in things that don't necessarily promote profits or the bottom line. And these workers were like, we're not waiting. The system doesn't incentivize them to ever make our lives livable, to pay us enough so we don't have to commute from Central Valley to San Jose. So we're taking matters into our own hands and we're getting organized and getting better wages and a voice on the job. And um, they introduced me to Tech Workers Coalition. 
So it's interesting because Silicon Valley and organized labor haven't always gone hand in hand. And I think there's been a sense among a lot of people in Silicon Valley, probably especially the entrepreneurial class, that unions are an obstacle to innovation. Um, you have people like Tesla CEO Elon Musk, um, you know, who sees organized labor getting in the way of his his goal to save the world and, and uh, establish a colony on Mars and get us off carbon and all that. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of tension between the Silicon Valley idea of like move fast and break stuff or the lean startup or being agile, being mission driven, and some of the values that unions have historically stood for, like job security and stability and fair wages and that sort of thing. Is that change? I mean, is, is there, are there, are attitudes changing or, um, you know, among whom, I guess, are the attitudes changing in Silicon Valley to think that maybe unions actually do have a really important role or, or labor organization of various forms has an important role to play here? Yeah. I mean, I, and I think a lot of what you're describing is like the individualism that we just like associate with the American West and the frontier and Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and innovation. And, but I feel, I always felt like I was trained to relate to my daily community with this posture of inflation like what do you do where do you work and like there's this script you you say to prove all the ways that you get sense of self and identity and importance from your work and like I'm so busy and I'm so stressed because my job is so important um and like we're also trained to hide any struggles or challenges that are too problems that are too big to solve um like maybe actually I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to turn this job into what I really want because our leadership has a habit of only mentoring men or mm-hmm. my job is just stressful and not rewarding. And, but I'm afraid to lose it because I have no idea how to get the next one. Anyways, with tech workers coalition, um, we lead with kind of that format that's says like, let's talk about what's not great about your job. And it, it, for me, it became the first authentic community I knew where we could broach those subjects transparently and vulnerably and honestly. And um, in my experience, just exchanges where with another friend or worker or person, when they build a certain kind of connection and authenticity when you're not just leading with what's great about it, when you also talk about what's not great about it. So we're leading with this format where we're dealing with really tough systemic injustices, but at the same time, they don't get bogged down in this usual despair that workplace complaining often does. Instead, it feels hopeful because in just a moment where we bring up one an issue with a peer or coworker, it already feels like change is possible or like we're already starting to work towards something better. So that's in essence what Tech Workers Coalition aspires to be is that clearinghouse, a resource center for workers who are trying to imagine together better workplaces, work lives, work experiences, rather than waiting on it to be handed down to us from above. Okay, I know that at the beginning we said there were a lot of points we were going to hit, and that's because we hit so many points this year. We certainly did not cover all of them, but we do hope that you enjoyed listening to us throughout the year. And if you're just now joining us for the first time, please stay tuned for 2019. That does it for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Orimus. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate it, not only because we like to be praised, but because it helps other people discover the show. Without those reviews, nobody would find it. 
If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez and Cody Hamilton for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.